Is that your small group? Am I on here? Coit? Yeah, there we go. So is that your small group? Is it all awkward and cringy-like like that? So let me ask by show of hands, who in this room is either in or has been in a community group, small group at Bayview Church? Raise your hands, keep them up. How many of you have been in a group at a different church? Or Bayview, just keep your hands up. Okay, so most of the room is familiar with the subject we're going to talk about today. Now, we might call it something different. Some churches call them small groups. Some churches call them focus groups or prayer groups. But it's, in essence, it's the same thing, and it all revolves around this idea of community. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to dwell on a particular passage in Acts that really describes how this kind of came about. Where did this idea of Christian community come from? And in Acts 2, uh, verses 42 through 47, this is the fellowship of the believers. The Bible says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed (laughs) were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. May I be a worthy vessel and deliverer of that word. Lord, we pray for this congregation. We pray for people in this congregation to seek that community, that fellowship, that desire to be with one another, to grow together in your heavenly Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So where do we find this idea of community here locally at Bayview Church? Well, turns out it's one of our core values, Christ, community, culture. It's written on the walls. It's all around in the center. And we talk about it. But what does it really mean? Well, here's what our core value says, and it's small print, so I'll read it. When we become a believer in Christ, God places us into a new community, his church. This puts you as an individual into his community. We value deeper relationships as a place where gospel growth happens. We believe that discipleship happens best in deeper relationships and smaller groups within the context of community. We also value small group life in the church as a better place for deeper relationships to grow. Get in the picture. This drives the shape of our ministries. To be a disciple, you must walk with other disciples in life where we speak into one another's lives. So clearly, the key concept here is deeper relationships. But what does that actually mean? And that's really what I'm going to talk about in this message. But first, we need to walk back into the gospel itself to pick up where this idea of Christian community actually has its genesis. And it turns out that it's in all, all, almost all of the uh, synoptic gospels describe this moment. But this is where Jesus took this entire body, this corpus of law, the Mosaic law, and he refined it down into two succinct commandments. In the Gospel of Mark, he writes, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So now we've picked up that 
we have a gospel foundation, we have a biblical passage that speaks directly to this idea of community, and we have translated it into a core value in our church. But before I go into the heart of the message, I think it's important when you're looking at the Bible to not take things in isolation and to look at the context in which an event takes place. So the Acts 2, 42, 47 follows some very significant things immediately after that occur in Acts earlier than this. And the first is the great moment or sermon at Pentecost when Peter gets up and charges all the believers. Now, Pentecost is when the 120 disciples mentioned in Acts receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that the word Pentecost comes from the Greek word for 50. And it turns out this is not an isolated event. These people didn't just sort of randomly show up there and all of a sudden this amazing thing happened. They were purposefully in Jerusalem because it's a traditional Jewish celebration. It's called the Feast of Weeks. And as it turns out, it's seven weeks plus a day after Passover. So if you do the math, seven times seven is 49 plus one is 50. So 50 days after Passover, here they are in Jerusalem on purpose. And this, then the great thing happens, but it had to coincide with something that was traditional. It comes from Leviticus. And what happened? It was an amazing event. Next slide. The Holy Spirit comes down and is indwelt into these people. And then there's baptisms. In fact, it's perhaps the greatest moment of rebirth and regeneration in the history of the Bible. And in fact, Luke tells us about 3,000 new believers in that day alone. So you talk about viral growth, things like on the internet that are viral. Well, that's viral growth. That's an example right there when you're talking about 3,000 in a day. That's amazing. So, because I come from the military background, I have to have an overview slide to tell you what I'm going to tell you. So there you have my, don't count, but I have three main points, and then application. So application doesn't count as a main point. But there are three main points in my sermon, so let's dive into it. First, the kind of fellowship we're talking about in Christian community is a special kind of friendship. It's not ordinary friendship. And verse 42 kicks us off there when we talk about how they're devoting themselves to teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. Now, what we're talking about here is no ordinary fellowship, but this is Holy Spirit inspired. This is a clear idea of ideal picture of how gospel inspired community should work out. Community in this place is displacing individual needs. Now, Luke uses a special word for this type of community, and I'll be repeating it throughout the sermon. He's the author of Acts, and here he uses a word, koinonia. That's a word for fellowship. This is the first time that this word appears in Scripture. Now, one commentator described koinonia as going beyond brotherly love towards something magical that has transformed these believers via signs and wonders to the point where they have abandoned normal human desires for things, possessions, private property, in favor of selling those things, redistributing the wealth, and living communally, which I will describe more in a moment. Now, sadly, this being people, people are by nature sinful, and sinful people do sinful things, and not long after, if you go about four chapters forward in Acts, we see this thing start to unravel, this brotherly love and koinonia and this sort of ideal, uh, idyllic state. But it was a good sign and a vision of what heaven might actually look like, which John describes all the way at the end of the Bible in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22. 
when he says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So those are the reverential aspects of koinonia. But Luke also takes pains to mention the idea of breaking bread. Now, since these believers that Luke is addressing here and describing were Jews from the church in Jerusalem, their meals always had a spiritual meaning. It was more than mere sustenance. And in fact, originally there was a caste or a class aspect to Jewish meals that the gospel completely shatters. And we see a couple of examples of this. Uh, first, uh, where we talk about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, he, he says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he, Jesus, was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is sitting and eating with these people, which is unheard of in traditional Jewish culture. And as Kevin did in the series on Galatians, he told us about a, an episode where Paul rebukes Peter. It's in Galatians 2. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter in this case, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and <clears throat> separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw, I being Paul, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, another question comes up when we talk about breaking bread in this context. Well, were they, were they breaking bread? Like we typically use that term about a meal. We're going to go out to eat. We're going to go to California Pizza Kitchen or wherever and break bread. Were they breaking bread and having a normal meal or were they following the Lord's Supper? The ideal that Jesus set in the Last Supper that we see, we celebrate it once a month here when we do communion. Well, it turns out probably wasn't any distinction between the two. When Jesus broke the bread and drank the wine, he was simply following tra Jewish tradition for all the meals. If you've ever been to a traditional Jewish meal, a Jewish service uh, at, a, at a synagogue, when they, when they do this, you see that there's a prayer for the bread and a prayer for the wine at every meal. The prayer for the bread is called the hamotzi. Baruch atah anai, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Lechem is bread. That's the hamotzi. That covers all the food, by the way, bread and all the other food. But it doesn't cover the wine because wine in the Jewish faith is special. And that's a special prayer called the Kiddush, which actually means sanctification, which is Baruch Atad Anoi, Eloheinu Melechalom, Berei Peri Hagafen. So there's those two prayers that go with every Jewish meal. So this breaking bread was a meal. And it also had the symbolic aspects to it, same as what Jesus did. And of course, the other thing they're doing is praying. They're praying together. They're putting communication with God front and center in importance. So here we see koinonia in action. We see them doing things together, being together, growing together in Christ, breaking bread together, <clears throat> and praying together. Now, there's something else special 
about Christian community as depicted in the book of Acts. It smashes cultural barriers and historical barriers to people coming together. And you see in verses 43 and uh, 45 just how that plays out, how they were awed, how they were the signs and wonders. But what, did it ha- what happened? Well, they were having their things in common and they were taking their things and giving it to anybody that needed it. That's pretty impressive when you think about how humans normally act. This is mine. That's yours. Can't have mine. <clears throat> so what does he talk about? Well, who are these people? Well, it's every soul and all who believed. This is directed to the church in Jerusalem. So he's speaking to a Jewish audience in this case. But he doesn't say all believed. When he says all who believed, he is right there setting up a distinction between Jews who are holding to the traditional faith and those Jews who have come over to Christ. Now, the ones who have come over are in a little bit of a difficult position because there's a strong desire in their hearts to cling to the things they know, to the customs, the traditions, the holidays, and all those things, but yet they are drawn to the new Savior in Jesus Christ. As the church grows, though, it expands, and the apostles cast their net a lot wider and evangelize Gentiles. So that's the intent. We're starting with the Jews in Acts 2, but eventually we're going to spread this to the Gentiles. Paul, who is the primary minister to the Gentiles, tells the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So it's very significant for Paul to be telling a Gentile audience that you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are now being included into the kingdom of God, which previously by the Mosaic law was denied to you. Now you have it. It's also consistent with Romans 1 where Paul states, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When they say Greek, they mean Gentile. So again, you're seeing this permeating and extending throughout civilization to all who believed, irrespective of what their background is, their ethnicity, where they were born, what, how much money they have. It erases all those barriers of caste and class. So, when we talk about ourselves, let's fast forward to the modern day. Do we need to keep within our own people group to grow best in Christ? There is church-related research that shows the gospel spreads more readily among homogeneous groups. In other words, when people speak the same language, they share the same interests, they're of the same ethnicity, you know, you kind of look like me.
sign when we're ready. We're ready? Yay, we're back. Okay. I hope you like the commercial. So what we were talking about was whether the groups work best when it's all kind of people that know each other or look the same, speak the same language. They have a lot of common interests. But my question would be, is this the most scripturally sound approach? And you probably already know what the answer is. But Paul is very specific on this. When he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he says to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So this passage suggests that for us to get to a greater depth of spiritual maturity, we need to look past individual identities and work more on our oneness as a body of believers. And this is an issue that we wrestle with when we look at Bayview community groups. Do we create what we call affinity groups based on demographics like season of life, you have small children, older children, no children, uh, married, not married, you have shared interests, are you in the military, can you get on base, can you meet there? Do, or do we look to create a more diverse population within our groups or can we do both and thrive anyways? And I think we kind of land in the last place. There are some groups that are more ethnically or demographically similar. There are groups that are very diverse. We had one group that was people who are from Guam. I won't say the word locals because that's often misconstrued to me, one type of ethnicity or other, but it's people who are more permanent party here on Guam were happily chugging along in a group. And I went to the group leader and said, hey, I got this young Coast Guard couple with a baby that wants to join a group. And I, I think you're the right group for them. And he goes, sure. And it turns out it was a great fit. They fit right in. They got to know a lot of people on Guam. It's just a really good thing that happened there. So these things do happen, and we just have to be open-hearted and open-minded about them. Now, the second thing they talk about here is having everything in common and redistributing their assets. I want to remind you, this is koinonia, not communism. This is not the result of some state entity imposing external, atheistic, coercive power on an unwilling population, but rather this is coming from inside. This is internally driven Holy Spirit power that's causing these people to do that. They want to do this. Now it turns out, again, in, back in culture, this would have been familiar to both Jews and Greeks sharing amongst these, themselves. But the key difference that the gospel breaks down is that previously it was aligned along caste or class. So if someone was in my social class or my social caste, I could share with them, that would be fine, help them out, and we would share our things. But in this case, it's anybody who has need irrespective of where they come from. And that's what the gospel is crushing and leading us to. It's a change of heart and mind and eliminating these impediments to growing closer to Christ. It wasn't all their possessions, but it was basically oriented around need. I mean, they kept their houses, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But this type of generosity is absolutely, completely in line with the Christian ideal because Christ in Matthew says, 
For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He doesn't say because you had the same economic status as me. That's not what happens. It's whoever has need, whoever is a believer, is your brother and sister in Christ. Now the third point, so we've looked at how this is a special kind of friendship, and we've looked at the aspects of it, of, of how, how the people related to one another, but now we're going to look also how this is a friendship that is focused on God. And the last two verses talk about this. What are the godly effects here? The people are receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. They're praising God. They are adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. This speaks to some especially significant things to the modern Christian church. But first, they're working out God's second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So I want to hit on that first. Jesus explicitly tells his followers that this is what God wants and that they will receive the Holy Spirit to help them love one another. In John 14, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That helper is the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul explains how this works in real time. I'm going to read you some passages, so not too long. But this is the famous one another's that we talk about. I'm sure many of you who've been in church for a while have heard various sermons about the one another's. First, in Colossians 3, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Elsewhere, the Bible teaches us to encourage one another and hold each other accountable. In Hebrews 3, the author says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That's kind of an odd phrase, but it means as long as we're in current timekeeping history and not at the end of times, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In Hebrews 10, the author says again, and let us consider how to stir up one another and to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And finally, in James 5, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. But to do this effectively, we collectively, individually and collectively, need to make koinonia a priority in our very busy lives. The Hebrew passages emphasize this. What do they tell us? To meet day by day or every day. That's a bit of an intensity that they're talking about there. That's not every once in a while. And it's more often than ever as the end is near. And it's in both public and intimate settings. They're attending the temple together, but they're breaking bread in their homes. And here he highlights that meeting in homes is a desirable thing for believers to do. There's an intimacy in a house that you just can't get in a restaurant or church or in other places. And we'll come back to that. I'll come back to that point in the application section. But in Acts 20, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, 
how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So this gospel message is being spread again on a very intimate level in people's homes. And the groups in Acts, if I have the next slide, they were pretty small probably because having fellowship in a house would be pretty tight by current standards. This is a wealthy person's house. So this illustration depicts somebody who has some riches, who has some livestock. And you can see there's a living space upstairs, a sleeping area. There's some living space downstairs, but oh, by the way, that's shared with animals. Just like I talked to you, I preached on this. We did a Christmas sermon uh, two years ago, and we talked about, you know, what, what was it really like? Where was Jesus born? In the barn? No, probably not. Probably downstairs in a, house like, a nice house like this in Bethlehem with the livestock. So you couldn't have got many people there. And a lot of the homes, if you look at the pictures of the kind of ruins of current day, in current day Jerusalem, the archaeological sites, were single story. Maybe they were, I don't know, 200 square feet or so. So you couldn't get a lot of people in there. So again, the physical requirements made the spiritual size happen because more than about 10 people would be uncomfortable. So taken together, these, ver these verses highlight God's desire for community to be an everyday, all-day thing, not just a Sunday and Thursday or Sunday and Friday or Sunday and Tuesday or whatever day you pick, compartment. And the Hebrews passages add an urgency to meet even more as we see the end times coming, which is a physical as well as a spiritual reality. Because Jesus tells us in the Bible in Matthew 24, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor are the Son, but the Father only. The Father is the only one who knows when that day is coming. So we should consider it imminent. And we should be getting together more and more to grow one another in Christ. Ultimately, what we're doing, next slide, is working out the greatest commandment. We are thanking God for all of this. And we see this in Acts 2.46 when we receive our food with glad and generous hearts. The other thing we're doing is saving the lost. We are helping the Lord add to their number day by day those who are being saved. So next slide. And I think the next. Yeah. Okay, so we're, we're going to grow believers. When we talk about discipleship, again, reprising Ephesians 2, Paul says when we're growing one another, we're doing that. The whole structure becomes joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, notice he says, we are being built together. We're not finished. The work is not done. And guess what? I got bad, maybe it's good news for you. It's the good news of the gospel, so it's not bad news. But the bad news, I guess, would be the work is never finished while you're sitting here breathing. Work will be done when you die. So we have to continue to work at it to build one another up when we do that. And in this way, we see how community serves what I call the two great purposes of the church. The first is externally oriented. It's outreach. It's bringing the good news of Christ to those who have yet to hear it. This is the great commissional aspect of being in the church and being in church community. It's called evangelism. But also, the second great purpose of the modern church is internally oriented. It's growing existing believers in their walk with Christ or their sanctification journey, and this is called discipleship, which we know and believe happens best in small groups where there are deeper relationships. In fact, I would argue the relational aspect 
has to happen first for the other two things to function well. In order to be a good evangelist or a good disciple maker, you need to be tight with one another and you'll be most powerful and most effective. Now, John Piper says, when it comes to the community and community group, it's easier to stay at home and watch TV than to get together with people different from you and carry their burdens in prayer and minister to them with your gifts and strategize with them to reach the lost. But God doesn't get more glory when you just do the easy thing. He gets more glory when you depend on Him to help you do the hard thing, and especially when you do it with the joy of hope. So he's speaking here to the sacrificial aspect of Christian community life. So how do we do community groups at Bayview? You see a picture here? Well, our community groups, as I mentioned at the beginning, is the same as what you might have called a small group. We kind of use the words interchangeably. We landed on community. It's one of our core values. So it made good sense to us to use that particular word, but it's the same thing as small group. And really, it's all koinonia. It's Christian fellowship. Now, the mission that we've articulated for ourselves is on an ongoing basis, Bayview's community groups will bring the gospel to bear on aspects of people's lives through the context of relationships using the model God presents in Acts 2, 42-47 as a goal. Now, what are the objectives? Now, we've heard this expression. Next slide. Do life together. Well, this is developing deeper relationships through Christian fellowship, breaking bread, wrestling with God's Word, and praying. Loving one another. We consider our community groups to be the first line and the first level of pastoral care and counseling. I call it spiritual triage. And when it works well, it works very well. And I've, we've had it happen uh, where several times community group leaders have come to us in the eldership and said, hey, we got a problem with this person, this person, a couple. It might be a marital problem or somebody's had death in the family or somebody is perhaps straying from the faith into an area of sin or darkness. And the group has tried to handle it. The leaders try to handle it. They address it. They meet with the people. And sometimes it's beyond their capacity. And then they tell us. And then we start to work it. We look for resources and ways to help this person. We pray for them. And so that's the way that functions very well. And in many, many cases, the problems are relatively minor in comparison, in context, and the groups handle it themselves. Somebody needs a, a car for, for a week, or somebody needs some childcare, or somebody had a death in the family, and they handle it, and they help, the, they help each other out. That's the ideal. That's the model. That's what we're all looking for when we get together in our groups to get beyond sort of the superficial, to get into a deeper relationship. We apply God's Word. Now, I use two words here to describe how we deal with God's Word in the broader context of church. What I'm doing right now, Sunday sermon, is I'm serving a formative, uh, I'm serving a formative purpose. I'm trying to form and shape your theology by giving you God's Word and explaining using God's Word what it means. But this isn't the venue for us to get deeper into it. This isn't the right place for us to do application. So when Kevin does that, and I'm doing it today, but he does the shaping, that's formative. But when you go to your community group, we call that normative. So there's formative and normative. Normative means applying God's Word to your individual situation and your personal lives. So how do these kind of somewhat lofty ideals we articulate from the pulpit translate into tangible things for you to do to get closer to one another and to Christ. We also keep an empty chair. That's a good term a lot of 
small groups use. What it means is your small group can be an engine for evangelism, discipleship, and church growth. What do we mean? You got a neighbor who sees the cars come into your house on you know, Wednesday night, and they go, what's, what's up with that? Maybe they're a believer, maybe not. You invite them over. Hey, would you like to come and join us? It's a group from our church. Now be honest, truth in advertising. Don't say, hey, it's going to be a really great party, and then you're sitting there reading the questions that we write. <laughs> That's probably not good. But if you say it's truth in advertising, I even use those words. I say it's my church. It's a Christian church. It's a Baptist church. We're going to have a meal. We'll eat together. If you desire, you can leave after the meal, or you can stay, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a message we've had at our church, and we're going to pray for one another. I'll tell you from personal experience, you'd be pretty surprised how effective that can be. We have, we have netted quite a few people and believers from that sort of approach to being open and outward uh, with people, just on an individual level. Now, the guidelines. We've had a bit of a, Kevin called it a DNA change uh, in our outlook and how we perceive our groups and how we try to encourage development of them over the last year. Because we realized, with some help from one of his mentors, a gentleman named Gary McIntosh, who is an expert on church growth, that the thing people really probably most desire at first when they come into a church is they want to connect. They want to make friends. They want to feel a part of something. And are we doing our best to do that? And most churches will say, absolutely, my church is a friendly church. But when you do interviews of people that go to a church for the first time, about 80% of the people in the church say, oh, my church is friendly. And about 20% of the people who go to your church say your church is friendly. So you got to think about that. You know? So there's a lot of aspects to it. We'll keep it focused on the community side. But we really want people to plug in. We want people to be able to connect with one another. We've had many instances where people have gone to this church or any church for six, eight, ten months and then they stop. And you find them, you see them downtown or somewhere, say, hey, not to guilt you, but how come you don't go to our church? Well, we go to whatever church, or we don't go to church. Well, you know, we never really connected with anybody. That's on us. That's on us. And we need to do better. And we need to give people these opportunities. The desired result is discipleship, but there's a lot of routes to get to that destination. We established something called Bayview Outdoors as sort of an, an entry gateway to this, bringing people together around shared interests. Now, the first two that we selected were hiking and diving. But we could do more Bayview Outdoors things and do other things to get people together. There were a lot of ideas out there. Those two were the most common. But I will say that those are a complement to and not a substitute for our community groups. So what do we want our community groups to do? Well, we want them to meet regularly. Again, day by day, every day. That might be pretty hard hill to climb for a lot of people, but we do want people to start by meeting probably at least twice a month in your groups. We also would like people to meet irregularly based on the overlapping of lives. You know, the, the cliche is doing life together. Life groups, that's another one, like small groups. But really, it is. Hey, the kids are having a soccer game. Would you guys like to come and we'll go get a pizza afterwards? Yeah. Hey, we're going to the beach. You want to come? And just kind of ad hoc put these things together as you grow your group. And that's a way to really strengthen the foundation of your Christian relationship. Have identified facilitators. 
Now, when I preached on this in the past, we were pounding on, we need leaders, leaders, leaders. We have moved off the idea of having group leaders because we think that is something to grow into rather than an entry requirement to kind of shepherding or helping us with a group. So we're asking for hosts slash facilitators. And that's somebody that's just willing to do some of the organization. We're going to, have, we're going to meet every Thursday. We're going to meet every three Thursdays a month, and the fourth Thursday we'll go out to dinner. Whatever it is that you all decide on, we do need somebody to help us with the church management software to kind of do the scheduling. But we're not asking you to lead. We're not asking you to be the spiritual guru for your group. And we also are not saying by being the host or facilitator doesn't mean that you have to be the host facilitator in your house every time. So the two greatest impediments to getting people to do this job, this role, is one, they don't feel like they're prepared to lead in a spiritual sense. And number two, not my house every week. Well, don't do it in your house every week. If there's somebody in your group and you're blessed, like my group's blessed, we have somebody who likes the host or is willing, that's wonderful. Uh, but if there's not, then rotate it. Or do it at church one week or whatever, you, whatever it is, don't let it be an impediment to coming together. Don't, it, don't take your attention from the important thing. The main thing is the main thing, and that's Christian community koinonia. Disciple one another. Need to minister spiritually and physically to your group members more deeply, again, that we can do than we can do on Sunday alo alone. And of course, once again, providing that opening, that opportunity to evangelize the lost and do outreach. Our groups, as I mentioned, really achieve their greatest effectiveness, kind of the apex or the pinnacle of the group cohesion is when they're able to handle the difficult situations. It's easy enough to go and have a meal, say a few prayers, and that's great. I'm not demeaning that. That's what I do. But it's even greater when that group can really coalesce around one of your members when they're in need and provide them what they need exactly in accordance with Acts 2. So our groups are collections of people, ideally 10 or fewer adults, one of the problems is we don't have enough host facilitators, leaders, to, who are desiring at the moment to serve others. So some of our groups are quite large. And we think it's more effective when it's 10 or fewer adults. That's kind of the objective gold standard. And ideally, it's based in the homes of church members with occasional mission work or ministry or outreach in the field. Uh, special fellowship events uh, at restaurants and so forth. But again, if you are best served by meeting at Bayview Church, we'll help you make it happen. The center is available. You just got to coordinate with the church staff about whether you want the center or a classroom or the sanctuary, whatever it is you want. We just need to, to know so we can deconflict. So what's our greatest need? Facilitators and hosts. I've already said it. And again, you do not have to be a Bible scholar or theologian Martin Luther X, to, to serve as a group host or facilitator. I will say that if you are kind of leading the guided discussion or a question comes up and it's a little bit awkward because nobody knows the answer, it's perfectly acceptable to say, hey, I will look that up and I'll get back to everybody in the group. That gives you credibility. It's more credible than saying, well, the Bible says, and you spout something that's not right, that's wrong. And that's bad, because it could be bad theology. So it's perfectly okay to say that. And you'll grow. And I, and I will tell you this, that if you open your heart to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit very often will give you the right words to say. It's amazing how he does that. But he does. You do need to be, though, loving Christians. So community, 
That's how we live out the gospel at Bayview Church. In conclusion, uh, there's commands concerning loving God, loving our neighbor as ourselves. We cannot meet all our spiritual needs from attending church on Sunday, whether in person or even worse, online. Not even our own devotionals or reading of Scripture will do it for us, although they're critical. So all these things come together, coming, coming to service, being corporate worship with other believers, doing your own reading and devotionals. But the third leg of that is meeting with other believers and growing in one another in small groups where you have deeper relationships and are living out God's guidance in Acts 2, 42. So if you want to learn more about our community groups, hub.bayviewbomb.com, that's our local website. There's a page devoted to all the community groups, and you can click on a group, see when they meet, who the group hosts are, whether that works for you. If you're not sure, uh, you don't want to make some decision, then you can click on the left QR code, and these slides are available in Church Center, make my pitch, and you can fill out a form and we'll help you do it. Now, if you happen to feel after my stirring motivational speech here today that you want to host a group, click on that one on the right. In fact, get your phones out and start doing it now. Okay, maybe not, but think about it. That will take you to a forum where you can volunteer to be a facilitator host, or you can just talk to me and I'll tell you more about it. And the last slide I have is the Church Center app. All the same stuff is on this app. If you haven't downloaded the app, we have the QR codes for iPhone, iOS, iOS and Android out in the foyer. Put, scan that, sign up, get the app, and you'll be good to go. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach on Christian community, Lord. I'm grateful for that. We pray, Lord, as we move forward with our, with our day today that we have a blessed day, that people are thinking about... Uh, the message about joining our groups, about growing into deeper relationships with one another, about facilitating or hosting and leading Bayview groups, and about coming together as a body of believers in strong power to evangelize the lost on the island of Guam. We pray all things in the name of your heavenly Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand with us.